0: This is the Glasses by Day, Geek by Night podcast, episode 3. I'm Matt, and today I'm going to review and moan about some geeky stuff. On today's show, I have some geek news. My own ranking of the Spider-Man movies from Where's the Best? Comics to read before you die, and Character of the Week. Geek news. Paramount Pictures and Nickelodeon Studios are obviously feeling very confident about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem movie. Not only has it got a second film, Greenlit, but it has a two-season series which bridges the gap between the films. The film received a six-minute standing ovation at the Annecy Film Festival not long back, But to me says they're very confident about how it's going to come across and how it's going to go down in their theatres. Every clip I've seen has been fun and comedy-filled. I'm, I'm liking where it's going. The voice actors for the titles are actually teenagers, so... That to me, it's it's always a good thing because I kind of feel like when you have adults playing these roles, it's sometimes hard to see them as, you know, especially when you know the adult who's, you know, who's playing the part, it's hard not to see them as that person. The animation style, it's new and exciting, all in all, I'm very excited to see how the film turns out. News from Marvel is that Doctor Doom is heading to Krakow, Krakow and he is taking his own X-Men team with him. The X-Men have had more losses than wins in previous months, so to me this seems like Doctor Doom. He's seen an open that he, where he can take over. He has his own band of Latverian mutants with weird and wonderful abil- abilities. I always look forward to seeing new mutants in the X-Men books, obviously, because they They didn't make any new mutants for a long time, so it's always nice to see new mutants. The beauty of a mutant in the Marvel Universe is that any comic book character who hasn't got a definitive origin story for their power base can be a mutant. Being a mutant in the Marvel Universe is the simplest way to describe a being with superpowers. No radioactive animals, no magic stones, no experiments. I'm just a mutant. I was just born this way. That's it. Keeping with the X-Men theme, Nightcrawler finally gets a definitive origin story. Our favourite teleporter, Kurt Wagner, he's had a few different origin stories over the years. From what I can remember, he was a demon from hell at some point. He was a circus performer who just was forced to perform. Most famous of the stories was his mother, Mystique, abandoning him in the Alps, leaving him for dead. Ever since the legendary Chris Claremont's run on the X-Men Nightcrawler's origin has been shrouded in mystery, subject to rumour and half-truths. We know that he's the son of Mystique and Azazel, but what else do we know? This promises to be a brand new iteration of the story and can bring a definitive truth to where Kurt Wagner came from. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. In other news, Batman Mask of the Phantasm turns 30, and I have fond memories of the film coming out, so that's how old I am. It takes place between seasons one of two of Batman and the an- animated series, which is if it's one of the best, if not the best, animated series ever. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pump that a little bit. So basically watch Batman the animated series. In the film, Batman is wrongly implicated for the murders of several mob bosses. The real murder is a new vigilante called The Phantasm. The story flashes back into Bruce's first night of crime fighting. Um, so if you're familiar with any of the comic books that might go with this so basically the story is based off the comics Batman Year 1 and Batman Year 2 so all in all, great film, great memories lots of n- nostalgia there for me, so I'd give that a watch Ryan Reynolds is obviously feeling nostalgic himself his production company Maximum Effort will be creating new content for Alpha and Biker Mice from Mars starting with biker mice from mars i was more of a tmnt fan basically so i do remember it had a little bit more of an adult tone and humor so that can only be a good thing and probably goes with his style of doing things the story follows three humanoid mice slash men named called throttle modo and Vinny, who escape war on their home planet mars before arriving on earth to defend it (sighs) I was never sure about uh, Martian mice who like motocross but I'm willing to give it another try there's so many 80s and 90s cartoons being brought back and revamped like for instance Turtles, Transformers even He-Man and Voltron got a run on X-Men, Voltron was always a decent series by the way so if you want to watch something with you know know, animated, decent animation decent voice actors go for Voltron, I, I enjoyed it Ideally, we'll get some good content, whether it's a film or a series, live action or cartoon. Alf, on the other hand, was a sitcom about a smart-mouthed alien life form. It's kind of the same concept. He's going for aliens, Ryan Reynolds. So, basically, Alf, Alf stood for alien life form, and he crash-landed in a suburban garage. Basically, so his ship is beyond repair. He's ugly, short, and he has a bad attitude. The family who's guaranteed Creston in to take him in and shelter him, as you would, obviously. Yeah. He comments and criticizes humankind while trying to eat the cats at any chance he gets. Cats on his own planet are a, are a delicacy. So he's kind of you kind of let him off for that. The show aired for three years, between nineteen eighty seven and nineteen ninety, so it's basic it's for any, any kids of the eighties, I'm pretty sure we've all watched Alf at some point. The show is cancelled because of the long shooting schedules due to technical demands of the show. It another reason was that a lot of the actors hated playing second fiddle to a puppet who actually got the best lines. So let's hope that Ryan Reynolds can actually do something decent with it. Whether it's back to the puppet side of it or yeah, CGI, who knows? DC Studios has announced a Watchmen animated movie. As someone who is a fan of Watchmen, both the film and the book, as well as the DC animated movies that have come out in previous years, I'm excited to see where they can go with this. Watchmen takes place in an alternate 1985, where costume heroes and villains are a way of life and have been for years. Most are outlawed and only a few are still active. After one of their own is murdered, Satch, one of the darker heroes, investigates... His investigation leads to a larger conspiracy, which has dire consequences for the entire world. An animated film could have spin-offs and expand on the universe, which would be brilliant. One thing about an animated Watchmen film is that you know it's going to be an 18. There's no way if you've seen Watchmen or read the Watchmen book that you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a PG in some way. It's just not the characters and stories can be brought into the dc universe as well because in previous years the Watchmen characters have already appeared in the you know a direct Watchmen sequel called doomsday clock so the sky is literally the limit for anything with anything animated where you know you can branch out from it gen v trailer gives us a better look at the mayhem so it, it looks like complete or carnage which i'm thoroughly looking forward to so I kind of feel like you know, you've got blood bending, head heads being crushed, death, destruction. It has everything that the boys has led us to expect. The story takes place in a superior university where they can com- the pupils compete for a place in the seven. So it's you know it's basically it's it's got a lot of aspects to it that are gonna be them competing and butchering each other just to get into the seven. So If you're a fan of the boys, this is probably going to be right up your street. Ben Affleck has reportedly been cut from Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom after the reshoots. By the looks of things, anything to do with the DC Universe, it's basically just trying not to promise a universe that has no shot of coming to fruition. To be fair, maybe they watched The Flash and saw how awful Batfleck's suit was and decided to cut him. None of that is a reflection of how I feel of Ben Affleck's Batman, which I liked In the Snyderverse. Other than that, I kind of feel like suit-wise and everything that all needs to disappear. Now, finally, on this week's news, X Men '97. So, Comic Con has shown us the artwork for the new series, which is a continuation of the '90s series, which it looks amazing. If you're a fan of the '90s series, then you you must have some nostalgia in your head for it anytime i hear the theme tune it just takes me back to being a kid on a saturday morning or fox kids back in the day it's just like it's something that i i didn't realize that i'd missed in my life hopefully i can get my kids onto it so theme tune wise it definitely has the best theme tune of all the 90s stuff next up i'm going to rank the spot of my movies so over the years we've had, a, we've had about 10 Spidey film, feature films with 3 live action Spideys and a plethora of animated Spideys. A whole heap of villains, so great, some not so great, within several different universes. The thing with Spidey films is that they can, get, they can only get better from here on in. Although it would be nice for the next live action movie to get Spidey back to basics, some in street level would be nice. If Spidey is off on a multiversal adventure every, every film... Who's looking after the little guy? That's the whole point of Spider-Man in my head. So I'm going to start from number 10 and work my way down to number 1. At number 10, I have Spider-Man 3. This film was the third and final film in Sam Rainey's Spider-Man trilogy, basically. So, as well as Tobey Maguire's last web swing until No Way Home. The film came out in 2007 had so much potential, but just left us a little lukewarm and severely underwhelmed. Toby Maguire's as he was fine. Yeah, I can't really say much about him. He was he was he was fine in it. Not the best writing for him. He was all right until he went emo, definitely, and did that weird dance thing outside the suit shop. I think we can all remember that. Then went. Then he went to the piano bar and beat the crap out of everyone there, including MJ. Not great. Not very heroic. The film are poor villains. Badly explained what plot twists in which Flint Marco aka the Sandman killed Uncle Ben <sighs> Topher Grace Ugh. somehow got through the audition stages to play Eddie Brock who from my knowledge is a big guy who works out well Topher Grace can only be what we can only weigh about 100 pounds it was a complete miscast Ugh. the the film shows Peter thriving in, in both of his lives which is different from the previous two films. He becomes oblivious and arrogant basically about Spider-Man. About how things work. That combined with an alien symbiote bonding with him. The police telling the Flip Marco was, yeah, was Uncle Ben's real killer. A psychotic best friend. A neglected girlfriend. Which all leads to some skinny photographer becoming Venom. Kidnapping NJ, And trying to kill them all. What I liked about the film was the fight between Peter and Harry. That was where the film won in my eyes. If you can get over the dodgy CGI when Peter is swinging around without his mask on, which, by the way, I still think is better than some of the CGI in The Flash. That's all I'm going to say. Tony McGuire was my Spider for a good few years and it would be nice to see him again and some of the Raimi vs Spider-Man characters back you know, in the fall. Not you two, further. At number nine, we have Spider-Man Homecoming. Number nine does not mean that I didn't like Tom Holland. Tom Holland's version of the Walker, that I really did and do. Number nine really states that I like other films better than this one. Basically, so honestly, the film is good. Yeah. RDJ, Robert Downey Jr. Cameos in it. We have Happy Hogan, yeah, who is a big part of Tom Holland's inspired universe. It leads to some great, com- yeah, comedic performances between the two of them. I, I think the whole, the whole. You know, dynamic they've got going there is brilliant Aunt May on the other hand keeps getting younger by the next film you know, the next incarnation of Spider-Man by the next reboot I'm sure she'll be in her mid-twenties Ned is a great character he's the guy in the chair, best friend got his back, this is what I like about her. I'm I'm probably in the minority where I can say I'm not a huge fan of Zendaya's character Michelle who by the end of the film it was almost like oh you know what we're going to make her MJ even though it wasn't hinted at whatsoever during the film. So I'm not convinced that they just didn't see Tom and her chemistry offset and just think, oh, you know what, we'll make her a love interest. The film shows Peter trying to become a hero in his own right, hating that Tony has put training wheels on his new, on his new costume, basically. So the idea is, after some mishaps, including a boat in two halves, Tony takes the suit back. Peter then redeems himself by the end of the film, then gets the suit back. It's a coming-of-age kind of superhero film. It's a good good first film in the three that Tom Holland has done thus far. One great thing is Michael Keaton. I can't say much more than I I, I think he's great. His version of Adrian Tombs, a.k.a. The Vulture, is cool. Slightly different origin story, but a great villain. So... This has got a big up on Spider-Man 3 because it had a great villain in it. Shame we haven't had him back for any to replay the character at any point. In at number 8, we have Spider-Man Far From Home. I loved the film. I thought it was a good film. Liked the villain. Not a huge fan of the nanotech suit, which suited me that he left it at home. Peter goes to Europe with his school. Tries to win over MJ. Elementals attack. Mysterio turns up. Fury turns up. Peter gets star glasses. Fury asks Peter to step up. Peter says no. Fury hijacks Holiday. Peter helps Mysterio stop the elementals, gives him the star glasses. Then MJ finds out he figures out he's Spider Man. Peter figures out Mysterio's a bad guy, gets hit by a train, picked up by Happy, you know, flies to London, fights in London, declares love for MJ, takes her web slinging. Then Mysterio outs him, to the, outs him as Spider Man to the public. That's basically how the film goes. Jake Gyllenhaal is great in it. His version of Mysterio is pretty cool. Fury is great as usual. Although we find out at the end. that it isn't Fury. But is mate Talos the Skrull. Who has had quite a big role in the. Um, secret Invasion recently. Happy gets better in each Spider-Man film. For me so. It's always nice to see him there. See him doing his thing. Not sure that the Flash Thompson. you know, Portrayal has ever been great. In any of the films. You know. It's not the way that I perceive Flash Thompson to be. So hopefully when you know at some point they can do something different with the character and make him, you know, more comic accurate. Tom Holland plays a great role in the film, especially in the beaten down hero who comes back to win the day. In at number seven is the amazing Spider-Man. I'm not gonna lie, but I think Andrew Garfield Spidey might be might be the best version of Spider-Man. He has a chat as, a, as Spidey that the other two live-action Spideys lack in my eyes. I think the whole film had an original feel to it. You know, it took Spidey back to the beginning, giving him less power than the previous, bringing in web shooters, which Tommy Maguire never needed. Um, for some particular reason, they just assumed that, you are know, like, oh, well, writing where he doesn't have to make his own web shooters or web cartridges. But, you know, I actually loved the suit in Amazing Spider Man. I'm probably one of the one of the few people in the world that actually liked the suit. I kind of feel like it had more of a homemade feel to it. You know, not like you know, Tom Holland's home you know, homecoming Spider Man suit that, you know, looked ridiculous but in a way where you could see he's like he's googled, he's YouTubed some stuff to try and figure out how to do stuff. Reese plays a great role as Doctor King, Curtis Connors, aka the Lizard. He, yeah, I think he's pretty good in a lot of things. Do you know what I mean? I always remember him being in um, Notting Hill back in the day, and he played a great role in that. So the the man is a chameleon, not a lizard. Emma Stone um, Gwen Stacy is probably the best love interest that I could probably say Spider- Any of the Spider man I've had. Their chemistry was always the best for me. I actually believed that they actually fancied each other. As opposed to the previous and the latter. The writing for the pair's interactions was much better as well. So the chemistry, you know, knocked with you know, they knocked out of the park basically with the writing and actually their acting. So what can we say other than best love interest? What I loved about the film was it you know, to put it above the, the other two films that I've previously talked about was that it's the cinematography of it the part where he's web slinging down the avenue from crane to crane is beautiful, it shows an almost realistic way that web slinging would actually work in at number 6 we have Spider-Man so this is the first time that we've seen Spider-Man on the big screen basically so Toby Maguire was the first person to play the role and to be given the seal of approval from the late great Stanley. His Spidey was the first to learn: with great power comes great responsibility. The film's antagonist was Norman Osborn, aka the Green Goblin. Which, know, yeah, if you're going to pick a Spidey villain, go big or go home. Definitely, probably one of his biggest villains. Basically, it was played by Willem Dafoe, and Dafoe is a great villain. It's almost like his face was built to be a villain. He it, it, it doesn't even have to do anything to look truly deranged. Do you know what I mean? So, gives a brilliant performance playing you know almost a schizophrenic in it in my eyes one of the greatest things about the original trilogy is jk simmons who plays J. Jonah jameson he's brilliant in everything he does yeah he's stilling. he's still brilliant in all the stuff he's doing now but he's yeah you know, in my eyes he's always going to be yeah, jj while i didn't really believe that mcguire Dunst, Franco, or especially joe manganello M- who played Flash Thompson as a high school student, I just don't believe it. I still love their performance. That said, would someone now you know, younger much younger than me not ask the question, why was a 27-year-old playing a teenager? Well, like most high school dramas from the 90s and early North East, the teenagers were quite often played by older actors. I'm I, I'm assuming that there was probably a logical reason for this, meaning that, Maybe the youngest younger people had to actually do schooling during the day. So it messed with the, the timings of shooting. That was probably one of the main reasons. But these days, at least our Spidey characters look more age appropriate. Like Tom Hollins and Dyer. Yeah, they look like they could be teenagers to a certain extent. I think mean, the beauty of the film is that it was the first. And nothing like it had been done before. It led to a generation of comic book geeks being created in the first place. In at number five and halfway through our aim list is Amazing Spider Man 2. I know what you're thinking, I put Amazing, I put Spider Man 3 at number 10 because of the crappy villains. While Amazing Spider Man 2 does have some crappy villains, it also has some, probably if not the best cinematography of the whole Spidey franchise. Webslinging has never looked better than the opening Websling through the city. The whole opening chase is brilliant. As I said earlier, Peter and Gwen's chemistry is the best of the Spideys. Dane DeHaan actually played an alright Harry Osborne, but his Goblin was awful. It was just like, it was just trash. It just didn't need to be there. The only good thing about yeah, No More Amazing Spider Man is that we won't have to see him again. Yeah, they didn't even feel like they should bring him back for uh, No Way Home. Jamie Foxx, on the other hand, Max Dillon was bearable, and even even when he first became electro electro, he was bearable. But by the end of the film he was just severely overpowered and surprisingly stoppable. You would think the guy who designed the power plant that they were fighting in would realise that Spidey was trying to do and, you know, maybe run away before he made him dead. I think that the Times Square fight and the slow motion save on the stair was brilliant. Probably one of the best scenes in all of any Spider-Man film. The bit where he free, you know, his web shoot is broke and he he fires a web, grabs the woman's hand, you know, you know, lassoes the the hand of another person and pulls them away from getting electrocuted. It's probably one of the best scenes in any Spider-Man film. The one of the things that pushes this that should have really pushed this further up the list was Gwen Stacy's death it'll forever be sad Andrew Garfield sold it for me I I feel like he's probably the best crier of the whole thing, I never believed Tobey Maguire when he cried Uh, Tom Holland's is much better but Andrew Garfield it was like, that guy never cries but when he cries you believe him I also love the hope scene at the end where the little kid's dressed up as Spidey and he goes to fight the rhino and it's about, you know, Andrew Garfield's Spidey coming back after Gwen's death. It's been months. You know, he's mourned. He's he's not over it, but he's, he's trying to get on with it, basically. So, this film would have been higher if the villains were better. In at number four, it's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I know what you're thinking. How come this cool film that redefines Spidey films and animation is not close to the finish line? I have my reasons. I love the film. I really love the film. It introduces Miles Morales, Spidey Noir, Penny Parker, Spider-Ham, Gwen Stacy, and Peter B. Parker. With a host of talented voice acting. Yeah, you know, the film is amazing. Jake Johnson is brilliant as Peter B. Parker. It brings a, you know, a not bothered but bothered kind of feel to Spider-Man. What I love about the film is the animation style which hasn't been seen before. One thing about the film that could have made it get further up the list was having Spider Man from the nineties cartoon turn up. I've definitely said this before in previous podcasts, but you know, that to me needs to show up in the next film. In at number three is Spider-Man No Way Home. No Way Home it is a brilliant film and probably you know in a lot of people's list is number one. It brings back Toby and Andrew, you know. And brings with their villains. Probably the better villains. It even improves Electro. Jamie Foxx's Max Dillon has a big glow up in the film. Yeah, the, the guy's got hair now. I don't really get where they went with that. Yeah, he was severely bald in Back in um, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Great fight scenes and actions throughout. Aunt May's de- dying was horrific. It's not as bad as Gwen Stacy's. But it, it was bad. You yeah. know. I took my daughter to see it and it didn't go down well with her when it when it happened. It was not a good thing. The issues that I have and the reason for it not being close to number one spot was that Peter actually over the three films has only fought two of his own villains. No one from No Way Home is from his universe. I've I've you know, none of the not of the villains anyway. I, I've made the same connection to The Flash. The studio's grabbed onto some of the success from the previous Spider Man movies and gone, oh yeah there you go well we'll do that that worked you know all that i that said i'm no way comparing this to the flash then you know no way home is a great film so, yeah you know, spider-man this spider-man franchise it is it's really good no way home is a great film deserves to be at number 3 in at number f- number 2 is spider-man 2 this is a personal favorite of mine basically so spider-man 2 great film it was much better than the first it brought in a great villain in Doc Ock. special effects were much better than the first. I, I love his existential crisis that stops his powers from working and gives him a glimpse of being normal and having what he wants. And his chats with Uncle Ben in his head. You know. I feel Terry Maguire's, Terry Maguire's Spider-Man, especially in this film, is conflicted about being Spider-Man more than any other Spider-Man. I kind of feel like this film in particular was... If you think of the first film, he was happy to be Spider Man to begin with. It was all working out for him. By the second film, it's like, hold on, I'm missing out on so much. Yeah, you know, I need to do this. By the third film, it's like he's the, the two sides that conflicted him, his Spider Man life and his normal life. He's he's worked it out and it's going like that. So if you think of the the trilogy like that, it's actually pretty brilliant. Yeah, you know, and now I'm saying it, maybe maybe Spider Man 2 should have been number one But Anyway Going back to the actual film, I feel Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, he he was much more conflicted. The fight scenes are better. The bank scene in particular, where Aunt May gets kidnapped, then actually saves Spidey, it's great. The fighting leading up to the train scene, and the train scene itself, is probably one of the best Spider-Man scenes of all time. It's one of the things that I absolutely love. yeah, yeah, His mask gets damaged, so he pulls it off. He stops the train and all passengers come to his aid, and instead of going, you know, these days they take a picture on the phone, and that'd be his secret identity gone, and all that, I just kind of feel like, it's a brilliant scene, shows that, you know, his good deed has actually worked in his favour, to a certain extent, Um, another thing about the film is that, in my eyes, everyone close to Peter learns a secret. We've got MJ learns it, Harry learns it, and although it doesn't actually say that May knows, I suspect it. I suspect she knows. The woman raised the the man, realistically. It's just a brilliant film altogether. And finally, in at number one, and I'm sure that it's not no surprise, we have Across the Spider-Verse. I have said that in previous podcasts that this is you know the best Spider-Man film, I feel like, of all time. You know, if we were going live action, Spider-Man 2 in my eyes is the best Spider-Man. But altogether, this is just across the Spider-Verse is definitely the best film. It's still out in the theatres, so I not give too much away. Other than it's a great film. Great universes with different quirks about them. Great spider people. The spot as an unknown villain who at first glance shouldn't work. But the way they went about his character development and where the powers came from. It just worked for me. The only thing wrong with the film is that we have to wait until next year for the next film. Next up, I have comics to read before you die. The graphic novel I've chosen to talk about today is Batman Year One. Bruce Wayne has spent years away from Gotham, honing his mind, body and skills, training all hours of the day, He has now returned home to Gotham to start waging war on crime and save his city. The book shows Bruce's first attempts at crime fighting as a costume vigilante. The story opens on Bruce returning from a long trip away. He's 25 and to the rest of Gotham he's the most eligible bachelor and a brainless playboy. Which he plans on using to mask his real plans waging war on Gotham's underworld. Bruce starts off frustrated with the fact that he has got the skills to fight crime but not the means to. Jim Gordon is the other side of the story, coming in as a new cop to Gotham. He's partnered with a detective, Flash, who is crooked. He's crooked as they come. Jim is struggling with the fact that he has to stay away from all the bank coppers. Gotham is it's built in a way that is corrupt this leads to trouble for him leading to him getting a beating from his partner and a few other cops don't worry though jim shows how badass he can be by taking Flash out and leaving him naked and handcuffed in the woods after a brutal beating bruce uses the art of disguise pasting scars to the side of his face distorting his natural good looks making it hard for anyone to pick him out of a lineup what i love about this book is that it to me, it's like a true origin story. It's how it it would have gone down. He isn't amazing at being Batman in the beginning. He makes errors. Jim Gordon's the same. He's a flawed character. He cheats on his wife. He he has all sorts of problems. Basically, he has all sorts of doubts about himself. The journal style used in it's brilliant. It it just it reads like. It, it, it's nice to hear their, their train of thought. It's like you're part of the process, not only of how we became Batman, but how Jim rationalised doing some dark things to keep the light shining. This whole book can be seen as a prequel to The Dark Knight Returns, which redefined what Batman would end up as. Frank Miller is a legend in comic world to this day, and this comic is one of the reasons why. Bear in mind that Frank Miller wrote Batman Year One in 1987 and still holds up now. The dark visuals painted by David Massicelli they're brilliant. They make you feel the grime and darkness of Gotham. The story also shows how Batman inadvertently creates Catwoman by giving her inspiration to don the suit and mask. I think that Frank Miller was taking a stab at the fact that Batman just has to be seen to create all the nutjobs that he comes across. Aspects of the book have been used in Batman films and animated shows for years. If you only have to look at you know, um the Nolan trilogy to see, especially in Batman Begins, that's got a, a big feel of Batman Year One. You know, most recently, Rob Pattinson's The Batman, uses the journal style, and although based on Batman Year Two, you can see the Year One style throughout it. This comic, it, it, it's, it's a great book, great art, and should be on your list of comics to read before you die. And lastly today, I have Character of the Week. Today's Character of the Week is Dr. Manhattan. I've recently rewatched Watchmen, I talked about it earlier, Dr Manhattan's powers are just cool. He's invulnerable to harm, can teleport, can rearrange matter, move things with his mind, he's omnipotent, he can live without oxygen, food or water and among other things. He is a great misunderstood character with a sad past. Dr. Manhattan is one of the Watchmen and the only thing, the only being in the Watchmen universe that has superpowers. He was born Dr. Jonathan Osterman in 1929 to a German-American family. He planned on following his father's footsteps to be a clockmaker, but after the US dropped the atomic bomb, he was, his dad forced him into a life of physics. John attended Princeton University and graduated with a degree in atomic physics. He started working at a research facility studying intrinsic fields where he found this first love, Janie Slater. Janie Janie things were going great with Janie um, until his accident. So basically as a, as his big accident, you know, John's accidentally locked inside a chamber and ripped apart by an experimental energy. John eventually pulls himself back into existence after a few ghostly things encounters around the research facility, his appearance is now much different, he's blue bald and in peak physical condition, he now possesses the power of a god so he's, he's he's pulled himself back into existence, he's all energy now, he is a god John starts his life as a hero, working for the US government, he fights in Vietnam, he joins the Watchmen John is the only thing that is standing between the, the US being, you know a punching bag for the world basically so he's standing between the world you know it's between him and the world being destroyed he can literally do anything but he's devoid of most emotions which you can see throughout the book you can see throughout the films basically so and after he's blamed for several of the people he knows getting cancer he leaves Earth and moves to Mars it's the one time that you see his emotions flare up is basically when he's blamed for Janie Slater getting you know getting cancer so it's the one thing that's bothered him he eventually returns to earth to stop armageddon realizing that his friends and fellow watchman adrian adrian Vate has framed him so he heads to antarctica to stop him while there he realizes that Vate's plan is actually to be you know it's actually worked he has actually saved the world although he has killed millions john decides to let him live he decides to leave earth looking for a place that's less complicated than there so after this, Doctor Manhattan ends up in the DC universe, DC universe, leading some great storylines in Doomsday Clock. John serves as a hero and a villain in this particular storyline. He eventually undoes everything that he, he has done to save not only his universe, but the DC universe. Things that most people don't know about Dr. Manhattan is that he was inspired by Captain Atom. So Captain Atom, he's in DC Comics. Eventually, initially, DC Comics purchased a company called um, Charlton Comics. So Captain Atom, Atom was one of Charlton Comics' you know comic book characters basically at the time. So Charlton Comics went it became DC Comics and DC Comics eventually decided they weren't going to use Captain Atom. So Alan Moore based Doctor Manhattan on Captain Captain Atom because the character would never get used until recently where the character was revamped. Doctor Manhattan is immortal. If he's ever ripped apart, he's mainly energy now so he can pull himself back together. Another thing about um, Doctor Manhattan that some people don't know is that he caused the New 52 in the DC Comics. New 52 saw yet another DC reboot. Characters that were well established such as Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman and more were all de-aged. Uh, making it so they'd not been in the business for as long. Um uh, his interference is still having repercussions now. he even brought Wally West back from the dead, basically so or back into existence i 'm talking about the ginger one not not the black guy. So Dr. Manhattan is one of the most powerful beings in most universes, only being challenged by a certain few beings in all of comics he 's a complicated character who could return for more stories, especially if the animated movie does well. I'm Matt, and this has been the Glasses by Day, Geek by Night podcast. Thanks for listening.